0: Some time ago, before moving here, I was invited to speak at a large conference in Walnut Creek, and I was assigned an unusual subject, something I had never addressed before. That subject was blended families. I admit I cannot address this subject from personal experience. I'm married to Hope. We celebrate 53 years of marriage in August, and we are still on our first marriage, We are still an original marriage, so I'm coming at this from an outsider's perspective, although I hope I'm an informed outsider. Proverbs 24, verse 3, notice, through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. This house mentioned here is most probably not an actual structure per se. This is a reference to a domestic household. Causing this proverb to read, through wisdom, a household is established, uh, is built. And by understanding, that household is established. The basic objective of this message is to communicate insightful and biblical understanding so as to better establish both blended and original families. Blended families are also called reconstructed families or step-families. But no matter what label someone might use, there is a basic definition on the note sheet. A blended family exists where one or both members of the marriage have children from a previous relationship or marriage. A blended family exists where one or both members of the marriage have children from a previous relationship or marriage. Uh, Also, the parent to that child that is not biologically related to them is the step parent and that child is considered the step child see if you agree or disagree with these statements these statements are either true or false don't answer them out loud because if you do and you're wrong you'll be embarrassed so just answer them to yourselves question the bible never uses the word step parent agree that's true that is a true statement. The original biblical language never used that designation. Question, stepchildren do not, notice, stepchildren do not have to be obedient to the stepparent. Disagree. That is a false statement. Question, stepparents shouldn't, shouldn't discipline the stepchildren. Disagree. The biological parent should probably do most of the discipline at first, and then trans- transition more discipline to the step parent until it's about half and half. Question: Stepchildren should be discouraged from seeing their step parents as their real parent. I 100% disagree. Question: The stepfather is still the head of the home and is responsible to oversee the stepchildren. I couldn't agree more. Most people aren't aware of this, but one biblical example of blended families was Jesus' parents. Jesus was the biological product of his mother. Remember Mary? His mother was his biological mother. Um, But because she conceived him as a virgin, Jesus did not have a human biological father. Now, Catholicism has a different twist on this. Catholicism teaches Jesus' mother remained a perpetual virgin. That doctrine, perpetual virgin, means she and Joseph were married but never consummated that marriage in the sexual union. Mary and Joseph never had sexual relations, although married. That would be an unusual marriage. That would be a biblical marriage. Uh, but according to Catholicism, Mary remained a virgin. On the contrary, the Bible teaches that after Jesus' birth... Joseph and Mary did consummate that marriage in sexual relations and had other children together. Matthew 13 verses 55 and 56 mentions at least four sons and two daughters. That means Mary brought a child into that marriage that was not Joseph. Jesus was that child she brought into that marriage to Joseph But Joseph wasn't his biological father. And so Joseph became Jesus' stepfather. And Jesus was a stepchild. And his brothers and sisters were step-siblings. Three times the Bible references Joseph and Mary as Jesus' parents. So Jesus was a part of an ancient blended family. Now this particular dynamic, this particular demographic, is increasing at an exponential rate. Due to the increasing number of divorces and subsequent remarriages. Get this, 75% of all divorcees are ultimately remarried. 75% of those that have been divorced ultimately are remarried, 43%, almost one half, of all existing marriages are remarriages for at least one of the partners. 65% of all remarriages include children from a prior marriage or relationship. So And so essentially form blended families. One out of three Americans is now a step-parent, a step-child, or a step-sibling. And more than one half of Americans today have been, are now, or are going to eventually be in one or more of these step situations at some point in time. This phenomena is here to stay. So as the church, we need to prepare ourselves to minister to blended families. Now exact and accurate divorce statistics are difficult to determine because of different factors. One is that more and more couples are cohabiting together apart from marriage. This is happening more and more. More and more couples are using that sort of fornicatious arrangement as a pre-marriage testing period. Uh, The argument is that we wouldn't purchase a car uh, unless we test drove the car first, so let's... Give it a shot and just shack up and see what happens. And the reasoning is, if being together, there's compatibility between them in that arrangement, then there might be a marriage. And if not, then the relationship is just broken off. And most of the time, that is what happens. The, The relationship is fragmented and broken, and it never results in marriage. Plus, divorce statistics are difficult to determine because there's an increasing percentage of common law arrangements especially among the senior population. Seniors need and want companionship. This is normal. But because tax laws sometimes discriminate against marriage, seniors don't want to lose the financial assistance and subsidies the government would deny them if they were to get married. All that means is that no one knows the exact statistical state of U.S. marriages and divorce. But that being said, the latest statistics indicate between 45 and 50% of all first marriages end in divorce. 45 to 50% of first marriages. Between 60 and 67% of second marriages end in divorce. And between 70 and 73% of third time marriages end in divorce. And the proverbial question is after. Evaluating these statistics is why do remarriages have significantly higher divorce rates? The answer is simple. The reason remarriages have a much higher rate of divorce than do first marriages is because of the unique and difficult problems that blended families face. I have seen this time and time again. Let me create a not so uncommon situation. Bob is married to Sue. Bob and Sue are professing Christians. It's the second marriage for both of them. Bob has been divorced about three years, and Sue has been widowed about 10. Both Bob and Sue bring children from previous marriages into this marriage. Bob's children are a boy, eight, and a girl, 12. And because Sue is older than Bob, Her children are a girl 16 and a boy 20. Because Sue has been a single parent the past decade, she has been a more permissive parent, not wanting to alienate the children. She lost her husband, and she doesn't want to lose the attention and affection of her children. That means Sue primarily parents so as to please the children. And the result is her children basically do what they want to do. And sometimes that's not a good thing. Bob, though, is a more structured disciplinarian. So his own children are intimidated into conforming externally to his demands. Bob's more into rules than relationships. And Sue's children don't appreciate Bob legislating what they perceive to be a domestic police state. Sue's children are resentful toward Bob and refuse to call him dad. There's this constant mantra, you can't tell me what to do, you're not my father. Sue has become resentful toward Bob because of his hyper strict and rigid parenting, and that has created a significant wedge between them. Sue feels as though Bob is pushing her children away from her, and that is not acceptable to her. This happens all the time. Let me jump into this and mention some statements that together get to the root problem in probably most blended families, and this is applicable to original families. Statement one, God has designed the husband and wife relationship to be the permanent domestic arrangement. God has designed the husband-wife relationship to be the permanent domestic arrangement. Matthew 19, verse 6. Now the immediate context, starting in verse 3, is the subject of marriage and divorce. Verse 6, So then, they, they meaning the man and woman in marriage, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together in marriage, let not man separate. God has designed the man and woman marriage union to be a permanent arrangement. Now, there are exceptions. God offers some exceptions permitting divorce for the protection of the innocent partner, but we don't have time to get into that. But there are some legitimate exceptions for divorce. But in an ideal situation, uh, God wants the marriage to be a permanent arrangement. And it seems that if someone has remarried After going through the emotional trauma and sometimes outrageous expense of a divorce, it seems then that there should be, on the part of that divorced person, an even stronger commitment to the permanency of marriage. But statistics have said most of the time that's not the case. I read about a jewelry store in Los Angeles that advertised wedding rings for rent. Do you understand that? And this is not fictitious. I have seen this. Some contemporary marriage vows at a ceremony do not read until death do us part. Instead, those vows read until we love no more. It seems that in secular society, more and more people are into serial monogamy. But God has designed marriage to be permanent. Some time ago, the Barnett Group released a controversial study that found the divorce rate for conservative evangelicals to be about the same rate, the same divorce rate, as that of agnostics and atheists. What is that about? Sir Winston Churchill once attended a formal banquet in London where each of the dignitaries were presented this question. If you could not be who you are, then who would you like to be? If you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? Churchill was seated beside his wife, Clemmie, and the people in attendance were curious as to how Mr. Churchill might respond to that question. No one expected the prime minister to say he'd like to be Julius Caesar or Napoleon, but no one would have guessed what he did say. He was the last respondent to that question. And he stood from his seat and said this, If I could not be who I am, then I would most like to be, and he paused to take his wife's hand, if I could not be who I am today, then I would most like to be Ladies Churchill's second husband. That's the reason his marriage lasted 57 years until his death at age 90. Second, the husband-wife marriage arrangement is to be permanent, but notice, second, God designed the parent-child relationship to be a temporary, temporary domestic arrangement. Genesis 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, let me reread the first part of that verse. Therefore a man shall leave. A man shall leave who? His parents. A man shall leave his parents and be joined to his wife in marriage. And the inference is that his wife has also left her parents in order to be joined to him in marriage. Understand that both biological children and stepchildren are to be raised so as to leave the home at a reasonable point in time. That's supposed to be the ultimate objective of parenting. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Now, this is a different twist on this particular proverb. For you amateur theologians, this is not the principal meaning of this Proverbs. I understand that, but there's something here I found interesting. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Please notice the word go. Not stay, go. Train up a child in the way he should go. The problem is there are thousands of families who have children... still at home, who have overstayed their welcome and didn't go. There's an epidemic of 20 and 30-something adults that are in a state of prolonged adolescence and are still at home because their parents didn't understand that the goal of parenting is to become empty nesters. I think it's a great... I mean, the problems you have with children, when you stop and think, there's an end to this, there's an end to this, you know? (laughs) It helps. <laughs> I personally know someone who is now in his 50s. He is a Christian, sincere. He has never left his parents. He's in his 50s. He is educated, he is able bodied, he's employed, he has a good income, and he's also married, but he's still at home. After the marriage ceremony, he just brought his bride into his bedroom at his parents' house, and he hasn't left. Now, there are exceptions to this. Um, my own mother brought her parents into our home to care for them in their old age. Uh, there might be a child who has a congenital problem, a disorder, a disease, that is, or someone that is disabled and cannot be independent, and be on their own, and so it is legitimate, it is perfectly fine for that child to stay in the home. That's fine. That's not what we're talking about. But for a, you know, able-minded, able-bodied young man, young woman, it is not appropriate for them to continue to stay in the home long term. That means the parent-child relationship is in a sense temporary. Because the relationship of the parent to the child that is still in the home is radically different once the child has moved out of the home and in marriage has formed another totally different domestic unit themselves. The relationship between parent and child changes once the child moves out. And that's supposed to happen. That means children should individuate. Children should ultimately, at adulthood, become autonomous. Autonomous meaning self governing, independent from their parents. And that is the ultimate goal in parenting. Statement three because those first two statements are true, remember the husband wife relationship is to be permanent and the parent-child relationship is to be in a sense temporary because of those two statements the husband-wife relationship is therefore to be prioritized over parent-child relationships now Ephesians 5 is a fantastic text that passage contains Paul's instructions to the congregation at Ephesus on the subject of domestic relations and it's interesting that The instructions on marriage, found in Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the instructions on marriage precede the instructions on parenting, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. The marriage instructions are mentioned before the parenting instructions, and that's because the divine order is marriage first and then parenting. It is unfortunate, but this principle runs counter to the thinking of most original families and blended families because our culture idolizes children and operates according to the mantra, children first. Most families in the U.S. and Canada tend to be child-centered and not parent-controlled. The post-Christian and post-modern thought is that children are supposed to be first. Ed Young, Jr., pastors of a mega congregation in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He authored a book some time ago called KID CEO. CEO is an acronym, corporations use CEO, chief executive officer. He's the one in charge. Sure there's a board of directors and all that, but he's the man, KID CEO. Ed's contention is that there's a power struggle in the average home and that most parents are relinquishing control to the children, handing them the keys to the corner office and ultimately the children become kid CEOs and the parents become the support staff. He's absolutely right. I'm seeing this happen all the time and people, this is wrong. Because parents need to be in the executive office and not the children. A bizarre example of that were some parents in one of our former congregations that had an only child. An only child. One morning, this child decided she wanted the master bedroom. So her parents capitulated to that demand and moved themselves into a smaller bedroom so that she could have the much larger master bedroom. That's an example of a kid CEO. And that problem actually started earlier on. Ed Young contends that the tug of war begins the moment the OBGYN, or midwife, slaps the baby on the posterior. He said immediately there's an organizational shift because there is now the introduction of a child into that domestic unit. He said a dual resignation happens at that moment. The woman in essence resigns from the principal role of being a wife and she now becomes a mother. She starts to immerse herself in the child. She wants to meet that child's every need and want. So much so that in an analogous sense, she marries the child and if she's one of the three of five mothers who are employed outside the home the additional demands from the job if she's not careful pull her even further away from the marriage the man also resigns his principal role as a husband and becomes a father because he is now responsible for another mouth to feed he feels he has to step up his role as a provider so he becomes a career chaser and workaholic He buries himself in his job so that he can give his children what he didn't have as a child and the result is that he essentially, in an analogous sense, marries his career. Throughout the course of this process, the actual marriage relationship gets pushed, pushed even further down the list of priorities and soon the marriage is no longer the focus and instead the child becomes the center. In time, more and more control is relegated to the child. The parents start to arrange their marriage around the child and arrange their own schedules around the child. Soon parents are exhausted from just chauffeuring the children to sometimes excessive extracurricular activities from ballet, piano lessons, gymnastics, soccer, softball, baseball, karate, on and on and on and on. The child is now the kid's CEO. He begins to get comfortable in the high back leather chair in his executive office and he props his feet up on the mahogany desk. And because children are going to choose to do what will bring them the most gratification, that child is going to do anything he can to protect his position of power. Proverbs 16 verse 2, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Meaning we want to justify our actions even if our actions aren't justifiable. Understand that self-absorbed attitude doesn't start at adulthood. It starts in childhood because children are self-disposed and given to immediate gratification. And in this backward model, child before parent, the parents report to the child and the marriage connection is demoted to second place. Edward VIII, Duke of Windsor, once visited the United States and said, The thing that impresses me most about America is the way parents obey their children. That statement was probably meant to be tongue-in-cheek, but it's basically true. And the problem is that out-of-order homes are producing out-of-order children. Carol Lynn Mither said in an article entitled The Perils of a Pushover Parent, she said, quote, Many kids today take for granted that they govern, they govern family activities and decisions. The concept of not Getting what they want when and how they want it is totally unfamiliar to them that is so true and then as the household continues to be a kid CEO home those children become spoiled rotten and rebellious children who have an entitlement mentality and then over time those children become spoiled rotten and rebellious adults who still have an entitlement mentality and that's a big part of what's currently wrong in our society. Dr. Benjamin Spock, how many of you remember that name? If you're older, you should. In 1946, he authored a book called Baby and Child Care. That book became one of the best sellers of all time. At the time of his death, it had been translated into 39 languages and it sold more than 50 million copies. Most parents from the Builder Generation read that book in Raising the Boomer Generation. And that included my own mother. My mother was part of the Builder Generation. I'm a boomer. Although she read that book, she then proceeded to ignore its contents, as my blue bruised and sometimes bleeding posterior could testify to. And that's because Dr. Spock was not was not an advocate of spanking. And in contrast, my mother enthusiastically participated in that practice. (laughs) Dr. Spock was the first pediatrician to use psychoanalysis to quote, better understand children's needs and family dynamics. His ideas about child raising influenced entire generations to become more permissive parents. Although he denied that accusation, that's precisely what happened. Kid CEO parenting is the same as permissive parenting. Parental permissiveness can be defined as the absence of parental authority resulting in the lack of structure for the child. Permissiveness represents childish disrespect, defiance, and the general confusion that occurs in the absence of adult leadership. And that unfortunate Parental paradigm is increasing at a pandemic rate, meaning it is all around us. Most of us are aware that businesses use organizational flowcharts in order to illustrate the chain of command in that particular corporation. I'm going to outline a domestic organizational flowchart in order to illustrate the biblical chain of command in a familiar unit. Because the first part of Genesis, teaches that God is a God of order, he has established an organizational pattern for all creation, and that includes families. In the top box of this org chart is the three-letter word God. God is to be the first order of order in the home. And the fact God is positioned at the top of this organizational chart was established in the first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Translated as no one and nothing is to preempt God. In the New Testament, Jesus reiterated that order. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first, not second, not third. Seek first the kingdom of God. So God is at the top tier of this chart. The second tier in this organizational chart is the marriage relationship. Genesis 2 verse 24 established that arrangement. We just read that verse. So husband and wife. Now notice on this chart I put the words husband and wife side by side and I used a hyphen to connect them. I put husband and wife on the same line and connected them because both the husband and wife have a one flesh connection between them. The words one flesh mean that just as our bodies are whole and cannot be divided into different pieces and still remain whole, it is the same in marriage. The married couple is to become one in the sense that they are not complete apart from one another. That reminds me of a joke I heard. Someone said, man by himself is incomplete until he gets married and then he's finished. (laughs) That's a joke, just a joke. But first is God. God first in all things. And then the marriage second. And that's, the reason, the most important lesson parents can teach children is to have a great marriage themselves because children learn best from what children see someone else do it's called modeling. The third tier on this org chart is the children Ephesians 6 verses 1 and 2 First 1, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right that was my mother's Favorite verse. She quoted that to me all the time. I remember asking, Mom, do you know any other verses? (laughs) She didn't like that. Verse 2 honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. One more time the biblical order is God, then husband and wife, then children. One of the biggest problems in the marriages of both original families and blended families. One of the biggest problems is the societal temptation to put the children ahead of the marriage. And in doing so, totally confuse this organizational chart. There are four different classification of child-centered parents. Notice, one, EMT parents. EMT is an acronym that represents the emergency medical technician. EMT parents are hyper, overprotective parents that are committed to rescuing their child from problems and conflict. Instead of encouraging a strong sense of independence in their child, those EMT parents foster a chronic dependence on themselves through their constant rescuing behavior. Some people also call this helicopter parenting. EMT parents don't teach their children to accept personal responsibility because according to EMT parents nothing is ever their child's fault it's the teachers fault the coach's fault it's another child's fault or even another parents fault EMT parents are great at the blame game because they cannot accept that their perfect child could possibly be at fault for anything second are NCAA parents the NCAA is an acronym and represents the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And NCAA parents are parents that see their children as potential super athletes. Some of these parents essentially live out their childhood athletic dreams through their children. Dad was just an average jock in high school, so he wants his son to become what he never could be himself. These parents are sometimes hyper-demanding and see themselves as a coach or a personal trainer and the child as a recruit and constantly push their child to succeed at athletics even if the child doesn't have an aptitude toward athletics or even an interest toward athletics. It doesn't matter. Third are YMCA parents. YMCA parents have a buddy system with their children. YMCA represents the organization called the Young Man's Christian Association. That organization started in 1844. It's not as Christian as it once was. Uh, That organization popularized the buddy system. The buddy system is used in different situations, such as in a public swimming pool. The lifeguard blows his whistle, and everyone in the pool holds up the hand of his buddy and yells, buddy! and the lifeguard can see that everyone is swimming with his buddy or her buddy, and so everyone is present and accounted for. YMCA parents have a buddy system with their children. These parents want to be their child's best friend. YMCA parents do not understand that friendship is not the goal of parenting. Now, don't misunderstand this. It's not wrong to call our son buddy. And it's not wrong to be a friend to our child. But the child must understand that the parent is still the parent. Because if the child only sees the parent as a friend, it can totally undermine parental authority. 22 years ago today, my father died. 22 years ago on Father's Day morning. And some people find that to be a bad thing, I, I believe God arranged that as a good thing. My father died on Sunday. Sunday was his favorite day of the week. My father was a churchman. And, uh, and it makes, to me, Father's Day even more special. Um, my father, at the time of his passing, we were extremely close as friends. Extremely close. I, I, would, I would acknowledge he was my closest male friend at that time. And he was my confidant, my advisor, my counsel, and I missed that. But that friendship wasn't, didn't exist as a child in the home. It wasn't until I became an adult, married, and left home. And then, over time, that friendship developed and got stronger and stronger and stronger. I hope that uh, after Jesus, the first, people, first person I see in heaven is my dad. I miss him. Then there are Ph.D. parents. Ph.D. parents attempt to reason with their children and relate to them as little adults, expecting them to make educated, intelligent choices before they are mature enough to do that. Ph.D. parents have the mentality that everyone is equal, and the home is a miniature democracy. Ph.D. parents want their children to see this egalitarian approach as an opportunity to engage in democratic debate and discussion the problem is that the home was not designed to be a democracy it was meant to be a parental dictatorship and I'm serious in addition PhD parents sometimes have unreasonable academic expectations and push student achievement to the front of the domestic agenda. If the child scores ninety-eight on a test instead of good job, Johnny, no, then this parent wants to know what happened to the two other points. I need to inject a footnote. There's also a temptation to put grandchildren first. Grandchildren are amazing. I've said before, Grandchildren are God's reward to parents who don't kill their children. That's what grandchildren are. <laughs> it's a temptation as grandparents to to overcommit to grandchildren, and I personally, from experience, I think grandmothers are probably worse than grandfathers. An example is Hopi. Hopi is a grandmother. Nothing. Nothing ever excites her more makes her happier than if all four grandchildren are in the same room with her. At that point I am invisible, I don't even exist. <laughs> she is she is grandchildren crazy. And she should be. They're amazing. I agree. But she said to me once, "Now our grandchildren were smaller." She said, "I want to get a license plate holder that says my grandchildren are cuter than your grandchildren." I said, but that's not nice. And she said, I know, but it's true. (laughs) She believed it. The point is that children and even grandchildren are not to take precedent over the marriage relationship. Let me uh, conclude with some practical action steps to help families, original families and blended families in step-partnering and step-parenting. Step one, commit to a parent-CEO household. Remember, the parent is to be the CEO and not the child. But in changing a kid CEO household to a parent-CEO household, parents should expect some pushback. CEO children aren't going to give up without a fight, so things might get worse before things get better. Joshua 24 verse 15, this is familiar, Joshua said, but as for me and my house, meaning as for me and my household, my mate and our children, we will serve the Lord, that sounds like a parent CEO to me, Joshua didn't consult the children, Joshua didn't take a household vote, he just made an executive decision and announced I am the CEO of this household and this is what we're going to do we are going to serve the Lord that's what my father did my parents brought me to church before I was one month old and unless I was extremely ill and near death I was not permitted to miss church for any reason attending church was not optional at our house as a teenager as a senior, I got a job as the janitor at Purdue's Donut Shop. Purdue's Donut Shop was in a shopping center, a mile and a half or so from our house. And uh, I was a janitor, so I would go in near closing time, and I would start to do all the cleaning. All these racks of frosted sugar stuff, all, I had to clean all those racks, and these massive bowls and all the floors, everything, I cleaned everything. And uh, it was a cool job. Um, but I was, you know, I was into lifting and I was on a health food kick and I never touched a donut. And, um, stupid, I should have had some. Um, <laughs> I had permission each day at the end of the day. They're not going to serve day-old day old day donuts the next morning. They make fresh donuts. And so at the end of the day, I could take home whatever donuts I wanted to take home. But I was so, I wouldn't do it. I didn't do it. Until my dad suggested, you know, it might be a good thing for the rest of us if you would bring home some donuts. So one Saturday night... <laughs> One Saturday night, because it was closed on Sunday, I brought home, not exaggeration, 17 dozen donuts. I said, Dad, here's some donuts. He said, Okay. So we were passing them around the neighborhood, just going door to door and sharing donuts. But if, as a senior in high school, I had a date on a Saturday night, and that wasn't that often, I didn't meet Hopi till graduation. If I had a date, extremely rare. I was rejected a lot, but if I had a date, because of the late store hours, I couldn't start to do my job until after the date, sometimes as late as 11 p.m., that's when I would start, and that meant I didn't get home until 3 or 3.30 in the morning, but that didn't matter at our house, because at 7 a.m. on Sunday morning, my father made sure I was awake and up, and in the process of getting a shower and getting dressed for church. I was expected to be up at 7 a.m., although Sunday school, Sunday school was before worship, started at 9.30. But my father felt that we needed to be up two and a half hours prior. I remember one morning, I'd been out late working, and I had an especially difficult time getting up. Now, Stephen and I had this room that we built out. We had a basement. Basements don't exist here much, but in the Midwest, we had a basement, we finished out the basement, it was nice. And we had a room that we, I mean, our own plumbing, our own bathroom, closets, everything, we had beds, we, our own bedroom. But you know, my father wanted to be able to alert us to things, so he hooked up a, uh, my brother John might have done it, hooked up a buzzer system where at the top of the stairs of the basement, my dad could just push the buzzer, and that would be annoying, and uh, would get our attention in the room. What he did not know is we kinda disconnected the buzzer. But anyway, um, <laughs> In that case, um, one morning I was, I had was a tough time getting up and he, you know, buzzed and we didn't hear anything. He didn't know we didn't hear anything, so he started yelling at us to get up. And uh, I ignored his repeated calls to get out of bed, so I'm laying in bed trying to grab a few more Z's and my eyes are closed. And my father quietly came into our room and he proceeded to empty an entire eight ounce glass of water on my face. I decided to get up at that point. It was, you know, my dad, he was great. He would do all kinds of stuff. It was funny. But uh, the that parental insistence that as a, as children we attend church, uh, no matter what, might have contributed to the fact that our parents had a total of five children, and all five adult children and their respective mates are in church this morning. And that has become a generational thing because I issued the same executive Order for our household, and uh, except for sicknesses and an occasional job commitment, our three sons and our two daughter-in-laws and all four grandchildren are in church. Next step, establish biblical house rules at the outset. Establish biblical house rules at the outset. Biblical house rules define behavior and maintain order in the home. Rules can change from table manners to chores to television time. To cell phone privileges, that's huge. To homework expectations, to bedtimes, to curfews, and on and on. There are three reasons parents should establish house rules. One, rules help maintain order in the home. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. Let all things, and the primary context is the church. I understand that. But the church is also called the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. So this statement is also true in a domestic sense. Let all things be done decently and in order. God never encourages chaos and confusion. God is a God of order, and house rules help establish that order. Second, parents are responsible to provide discipline. Proverbs 29.15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom. But a child left to himself, as in the case of a child that has no parental discipline, a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. That phrase reminds me uh, that an undisciplined child can bring shame to his mother reminds me of the mother who had four notorious rambunctious children. I mean, these guys were miniature terrorists. And someone knowing the reputation and behavior of those children said, So would you have children again if you had to do it all over? She said, I would, but just not the same ones. (laughs) Third, understanding what is acceptable and unacceptable makes life more manageable, meaning easier for both the children and the parents. Deuteronomy 12, verse 28, God said, Observe and obey all these words which I command you. Why? That it may go well with you and your children after you forever. Step three, parental discussions should happen behind closed doors. If children see and hear the parents arguing about them, they are going to use that disagreement to their advantage. In the case of blended families, the selfish and sinful desires of each parent's biological children are going to pit the biological parent against the step-parent. Understand something, children are little sinners. And if the parents disagree in front of them, those children are going to put pressure on the parents and play both ends against the middle and divide and conquer in order to manipulate those parents into getting what they want. It is part of their fallen nature to do that. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And that foolishness is going to manifest itself if the child senses that one parent might be more sympathetic and accommodating to his cause. Step four, parents should always present a unified position to the children. That means both biological and stepchildren. Matthew twelve twenty-five: every city or house, meaning household, every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Parents need to come together and present a unified front to the children. One exception to that statement is if a step parent has acted in disobedience to Scripture. One reason I said that is because it's not uncommon to find a stepfather that has been sexually inappropriate toward a stepchild. I have counseled dozens of women who have been victims of that situation. That is not only a horrific violation to that child, a serious, serious sin, it is also a criminal act. And the other parent, once that parent is aware of that, must, must report that abuse to the authorities. But other than a blatant contradiction to Scripture, both parents should n- unite together in parenting decisions. Step five In areas of potential conflict, utilize Ephesians 4. Verses 1 through 3. In step partnering and step parenting, there are going to be there's going to be potential conflict and disagreement related to custody issues, finances, vacations, family customs, holidays, discipline procedures, step-sibling jealousies, and on and on. And the solution to those potential difficulties is to unpackage the instructions from the beginning verses found in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 1. Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Paraphrased as, we are to conduct ourselves as a Christian should. And exactly how we do that is mentioned in the second and third verses. Verse two, with all loneliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another with love. Verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There are five injunctions mentioned here that together help us interact in step-pardoning and step-parenting. One is lowliness. Lowliness is the same as a humble attitude. Some women have admitted to me in counseling sessions that their husbands have never once apologized to them. And then some fathers have never apologized to their children. And the principal thing that prevents some from apologizing is pride. And so God called us to be humble. Second, gentleness. Gentleness is the same as meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. There's a difference between an undomesticated lion in the African wilderness and a lion that performs at the circus. Both animals have the same raw power and strength, but the circus animal is submissive to the lion trainer because his strength is under control. So he's more manageable, he's more cooperative, he's even more gentle, and essentially he's meek. Each of us has a strong lion inside of us that if provoked can verbally pronounce verbally pounce on someone and do irreparable harm to that person and relationship, but it cannot do that at its own discretion if we are being submissive to God and exercising meekness, strength under control. Third, long-suffering. Long-suffering means patience. The husband that paces back and forth, fuming, muttering, stinging comments underneath his breath as his wife Is running late. He isn't manifesting patience. That's just forced waiting. Patience has a right attitude as it waits. Fourth, bearing with one another in love. That means a forbearing love. Listen to me some people love their relationships and some people love their opinions. The ones that love their opinions more than their relationships end up defending their opinions and destroying their relationships. If there is a parent-to-parent disagreement or if there is a parent-to-child disagreement, we need to first analyze the situation and ask ourselves, is this disagreement and this argument we're about to have worth endangering our relationship over? And I guarantee that most of the time it is not. Number five, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That Greek word translated as endeavoring means to strive with earnestness and eagerness and all diligence. It was a word the person who trained gladiators in ancient Rome would use as he sent out one of his men to fight to the death in the Colosseum. As he sent him out to the arena, that word to endeavor said to the fighter that he was to use all his resources and to do all he could to stay alive. That is the sort of intense and all-out effort we are to make in fighting for domestic peace and a unified household. That means we don't give up. We continue to try. Number six, this is the sixth action step. Prioritize the marriage over the parent-child relationship. Even in second marriages, a child-centered household is ultimately going to put the marriage at risk, even if those children are older and out of the house. And because there was little or no time and attention dedicated to the marriage, during the time the children were at home, the husband and wife have now drifted apart, and there's no relationship. And more often than not, no relationship results in no marriage. So there's a divorce. I met a man 10 days ago, in Southern California he seems a good man he's been married 42 years and his wife just filed for divorce because of this reason Diedrich Bonhoeffer I've mentioned him often was a German pastor theologian and anti-Nazi dissident he was arrested and imprisoned for his anti-Nazi activities during the time the Nazis imprisoned him in Tegel Prisons, cell number 92. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a sermon for the wedding of his niece. He was scheduled to officiate at her wedding. He hoped to be released to be able to do that. So he was putting together a short sermon. But because the Nazis executed him first, Bonhoeffer never had a chance to preach that wedding sermon. It was found among his other possessions. And that in that sermon document, there was a particular line that has continued to challenge and bless marriages. That line from that sermon that was never preached said this addressing his niece and her groom. Today you are young and very much in love and you think that your love will sustain your marriage. It won't, but your marriage can sustain your love. That's the reason we are to prioritize our marriage above all else, except for God, and especially over the parent child relationship. Let's bow our heads, would we? Father, there's a lot to think about here. Even though those who are not a part of a blended family, I hope they were able to find something they could relate to. I pray you'll use it to make a difference in each of us. Help us to flesh out this sermon, to make it practical in our lives. Can I thank you for this privilege of preaching to these dear folks who have been so patient with me and have been so kind. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.